The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning, everyone. All right. That was enthusiastic. <laughs> wow. Okay. We've got, we've got work to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I praise God for all of you. And uh, it, it looks like maybe uh, <clears throat> some folks have decided. I know Ohio broadly, and our county in particular, is inching towards. Uh, a new color in terms of the, the risk level associated with COVID. So it, it appears maybe people have uh, made the choice to stay home this morning. I just want to make sure we say out loud that we affirm that choice. And from the beginning of this whole situation, we've said, you know, everyone has to do their best to make a prayerful risk assessment for their family. And so if you're joining us by live stream this morning, instead of being here physically, uh, we're grateful for that. We're thankful for everyone, wherever you're at. And we're grateful for God's word that we get to get in it together. Amen. So that's what we're going to do. If you would, uh, please turn with me to Mark 7, and uh, we're going to be looking at the back half of that today. Mark 7, we're going to start in verse 24. Uh, so we're going to continue today in our series. It's called Servant King, and we've just been working verse by verse through the book of Mark. And uh, as I've had many discussions with, with several of you, uh, working through this book is, you know, and it's always this way to some degree, it's, it's better than I expected, better than I think many of us expected. It's just been a rich time together in God's Word, and uh, He's showing us things and teaching us about Himself and teaching us about us, and uh, I'm just so thankful for the power of God's Word and what it does in our lives, and really excited to get in it with you this morning. So uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or an app, we'll have the verses on the screen. Remember, if you don't own a Bible, we really would like to give you one. We have those available for free. See us in the Connect Center after service. Uh, so we're in Mark 7. We're going to start reading in verse 24. We're going to just go all the way through to the end of the chapter, okay? And here we go. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, 
He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Praise God for his word. Amen. Amen. So just so we can kind of set the scene here and we know what we're dealing with. The region of Tyre, okay, so most of what Jesus was doing uh, in the ministry we've read about thus far, he was centered in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee. The region of Tyre was a little bit north then of Jerusalem and and the Sea of Galilee where he was, and then a little bit north of that was Sidon, and these were both um, kind of coastal cities, so, and it's about 50 miles away. Okay, so if if you think about him walking 50 miles up there, and then it says, you know, he he turns around, comes back towards the Sea of Galilee, coming through Decapolis, he kind of makes a wide loop. That would, the the whole trip time here would be essentially like walking from here to Columbus. And it it wouldn't be like it would be elite, you know, if we decided we were going to walk to Columbus for whatever reason, it it would be kind of a leisurely stroll up 71 or, you know, right to the side of it. Because we don't walk on the highway because that's illegal. But, uh... So it, would, it wouldn't be kind of like a straight, flat shot like it would be for us, right? This is mountainous terrain. We're talking about elevation changes. So think more of hiking 100 miles total. You get an idea of what Jesus did here uh, in order to go to Tyre and back through Sidon. So uh, as I said, these are coastal cities. They had a lot of trade, and they had a lot of history with Israel. Uh, Tyre was Jezebel's hometown. So if you remember from the Old Testament and the time when uh, all that was going on with the prophet Elijah and all that. Uh, Not a friend of the people of Israel. Uh, That was her hometown. And uh, if it was not the place of origin, it it was at least an epicenter for sure of Baal worship. Okay, so uh, that reality would now be coupled with the influence of the Roman pantheon of gods, because now Rome had, had conquered the entire area, and so they brought in with it their religious influences. And so that meant overall, this area was a pretty, pretty seedy place. So in particular, from, from the eyes of the Jewish people, if you think about how I would say most of us perceive Las Vegas, you're probably kind of headed in the right track as far as how they would have seen this area Jesus went to, okay? So the question is why would Jesus take what was likely a weeks-long journey, and by that I mean potentially several weeks, to go to a place like this? It's, it's, it's out of character, not something he did a lot. He definitely centered most of his ministry around Capernaum, Sea of Galilee. I'm going to propose to you that it was at least in large part for this interaction that we just read about, this interaction with this woman and to heal her daughter is why he took this big trip. Uh, There's maybe a point of contention I want to clear up for us. Some of you may know that Matthew 15 also gives an account of this uh, interaction, and there Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. And so you may notice that here she's referenced as a Syrophoenician. And you might say, okay, ooh, is this this one of those Bible problems that shows us that, you know, it was just written by men and it's all made up? Nope, that's not what we have. What we have is the fact that it again points out the reality that God in his great wisdom had different men write different gospel accounts because they'll write about the same thing but key in on different details. And so the reality is this woman was both Canaanite and Syrophoenician. How do we know that? Well, to say she was Syrophoenician was a reference to the region and and maybe kind of politically what her affiliation would be. That's where she was born. In that area, that's where she was from. And for, for Matthew, so in Mark is writing to a Roman audience, 
primarily a Gentile audience, so they'd be able to peg right away, oh, okay, she's a Syrophoenician, I know what that means. Matthew, on the other hand, is writing more to a Hebrew or Jewish audience, and he says that she's a Canaanite. And a Canaanite, Canaanite would be, at this point in history, more of a, a reference to her ethnicity, because the Canaanites were not even really a, a, a gathered people at this point, right? They had been dispersed. So she was Canaanite by ethnicity, and that would be important to Matthew's Jewish readers because the Jewish people had some history with the Canaanites, remember, crossing over the Jordan into the Promised Land and who they squabbled with and all of that. They were enemies. So all of that is to let us know she's for sure a Gentile and, and even a Canaanite. So she'd be in all the despised people groups according to those of a Jewish perspective, okay? So... Um, we're talking about why did she go there. I, I believe Jesus knew she was there. And I believe that he knew the quality of her character and of her faith. And I believe even more than that, that Jesus knew this interaction would, would be recorded for all time and for all people in his holy scriptures. It, it, is, it, I mean, did the whole Columbus thing, the, the reason I did that and like tried to give you a point of reference was to let you in. I'm hoping you see the gravity of, of this, this offset in Jesus' story here. He's doing all his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. That's like home base, and that's what he's doing. And then it's, it's odd. It, it's striking to someone that understands the geography and the flow of the story that he just all of a sudden here, verse 24, he gets up and heads to Tyre, way the heck up north, right? Long journey. What, what's going on here? I'm proposing to you it's because Jesus knew this woman was there and that this interaction was going to be recorded for us and for all who would come to the scriptures for all of time. Uh, this, <clears throat> and, and really what I think we, we could possibly miss here, <laughs> if, if I don't point it out to us, is that we're reading about in this woman somebody who should be famous. I'm not sure to, in your mind how famous she is. She, she should be. And and what I'll say to you about it, just from a personal perspective, is once I am granted the glorious final honor of crossing into the eternal country for which I was made, and after I am allowed to bask in the radiant light of God's unveiled face for a few hundred thousand years or however long uh, I'm kind of stuck there transfixed with that, there are many other saints that I'm going to be excited to meet. This woman is one of them. And I hope by the end of this, she will be for you too. This interaction that we're looking at here in Mark 7, as I said before, it's also recorded in Matthew 15. And in Matthew 15, part of the interaction, part of the dialogue between her and Jesus is when she responds the way we see her responding here, Jesus says to her, O woman, your faith is great. Now, that may not strike you the way it should until you consider the reality that only the Roman centurion in Matthew 8 is also given this designation. So of all the interactions that Jesus had throughout all of his time that we have recorded of him walking the earth and doing ministry, there are two people that the Lord said of them, your faith is great. And in the, in the, Rome, in the Roman centurion's case, Jesus didn't even look directly at him. He kind of said it to the crowd that was observing around. This man's faith is great. Two people that caused Jesus to stop in his tracks and marvel at their faith. The Roman centurion and this woman. 
And I think a question that then should come up in our hearts is people who love Jesus and who see him as our master and who want to think the way he thinks. And, and, and I hope one day I could get somewhere even close to him marveling at my faith. I want to have that kind of faith, not the kind of faith or lack of faith that often would make him marvel in the opposite direction. I, I want to be somebody that brings joy to my master. So what is it? What was it about this woman's faith and character that caused this particular comment from our master? Oh, woman, your faith is great, right? I think there's several features that we can look at. The first is that in her, in her character and in the way she approached Jesus, she was bold and she was fearless. How do we see that? Well, as I said, Matthew's account gives us some details that, that this, one, this one is not, it doesn't say all the same things, and we see a couple extra comments where at first, when, when she's calling out to Jesus, Matthew lets us know that at first he didn't say anything. And then, and then he says what he says, which is really hard to deal with, right? I'm sure some of us are still kind of reeling from, you know, if, if this isn't something you've read a whole lot or heard anything about, it's like, wow, Jesus, Jesus called this woman a dog. I'm surprised we didn't see a fight here, right? Like, uh, but we'll, we'll explain what's going on there. But aside from Jesus' reaction, just, just for her to, to do this at all, Right? Just for her to walk up to Jesus, who is this Jewish teacher, first of all, knowing that she's a Gentile, she knows she's a Canaanite by ethnicity, she's a Syrophoenician, despised by his people, and, and she doesn't let any of that stop her. She doesn't let any of that ethnic, racial, political tension stop her. She's, she plows right over that, and she's coming to Jesus. And remember, it's, it's key that we remember, she's not possessed by a demon, her daughter is. She's coming on behalf of someone else. Not just is she a Gentile, but she's a she, which is another reason why she deserves to be credited with boldness and fearlessness. Because in this time, a woman coming and speaking to a man in this way would have been highly looked down upon. Furthermore, she kind of talks back to him, right? <laughs> so that's and that kind of speaks to, I, I didn't really want to get into this, but there's, oftentimes there, there is leveraged accusation that the scriptures are, um, <clears throat> shall we say, chauvinistic, or that, that they're, you know, what they're meant to do is to, their purpose is partially to hold women down. Well, this just flies in the face of that idea. Because if, if, if Jesus believed the false belief that women are less than men or, or you know, all of the sinful iterations of that, he would not have let this stand. He would have put her back in her place. And she could have half expected that in the cultural context she found herself. She wasn't worried about it. Oh, well, I'm getting to Jesus. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to get in here and I'm going to get this request to him. And I'm going to plead with him and, and, it, and it doesn't matter. She had a boldness and a fearlessness about her. Uh, she jumped over all the hurdles, man. Wasn't worried about it. In addition to being bold and fearless, and this is what is, <clears throat> man, to get this combination is, it's tough. She's bold and she's fearless, and yet she is humble and understood grace. How do we see that? Well, let's, let's look at Jesus' response again. So, the woman's a Gentile. She's of the Syrophoenician race. She kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
I'm in verse 27 now. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, how we doing? That Jesus, so Jesus said that. You guys, anybody else got red letters in their Bible? That was Jesus. So what is he doing there? He's, well, we could take it at face value. Uh, knowing Greek helps a little bit here. So Jesus calling, saying, you know, we can't take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What is that effectively doing? He's referring to her as a dog, right? And there was a word that the Jews would commonly use as a slur, very similar to how we would use the B word today. Uh, I know in 2020, we could get more views online and uh, we could stir up some buzz if I would have just gone ahead and said the B word and be real edgy, and that'd be cool, but uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so uh, we, we don't need that. God's power and God's gospel is powerful, powerful enough to create buzz. So uh, we, don't need me, we don't need me to swear up here to get attention, Okay. So it's basically that slur was like, it was like calling them the B word, real derogatory. And the idea was like a cur, like a, like a, uh, <clears throat> you know, an, a mangy dog out on the streets eating scraps. That was the idea behind it. That was the, that word. But Jesus, didn't, that's not the word Jesus used here. Jesus used a word that meant like little dogs, right? And so it's almost like, I don't know if any of you, if you're Spanish speaking or you've been around Spanish homes, you've spent any time. There's a, there's a term, it's, I, I, call, I say it to my kids sometimes, I, it just it rolls off the tongue so sweetly. Uh, one of my pastor friends in Mexico, he'll say it all the time, uh, like to a, 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 a young girl, they'll say mija, or to a little boy, like mijo. It's like little, little one. And that's kind, of the, that's kind of what this term was like, little dog, like a, like a pet dog that would be in the house that's endeared by the family. That's the term Jesus uses here, Okay. Still, you might be like, okay, cool, but <laughs> still called her a dog, right? Still talking about her eating crumbs from under the table. Uh, and so, you know, and, and, and you being offended like that or maybe feeling that way, <clears throat> that's what I'm talking about, man. She wasn't. <laughs> she, was, she, was, she, knew her, she knew all of this was the reality, and, and, and she was okay with it. She was humble, and she understood grace because the, what, what she said in return was, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. 100% without question, had this woman hand on the hips, head start wagging, maybe a little Z snap in there when Jesus says, we can't, we can't give the children's bread to the dogs, to the little dogs. If that had been the approach she had taken, this, this account doesn't go the way it went. But she didn't. She was okay with and humble enough to know Jesus had been sent to the children of Israel first. And she was in the position of a little dog, but she was okay with whatever, whatever blessing she could get from God from her low position. She, I'll Lord, I'll take that. I know where I stand before you. And what that really means is she understands grace because in coming to make this request, she doesn't come thinking she has a right to what she's requesting. She comes knowing if this request is granted, it is by the grace and mercy of God alone. And friends, what does that do? What does that do here to the heart of the master? It moves him. It touches him. To the point that she is one of two people that hears from his very mouth, you have great faith. 
This is great faith. For you to be bold enough and fearless enough to walk up and to start this interaction and yet at the same time humble enough for me to come at you the way I came at you and respond the way you did, head home. Your daughter's whole. And friends, it's it's hard for us (laughs) to strike that line. It's hard for us to be bold and fearless when it's in in the ways that it's correct, but also be humble and understand grace. And I've I've heard this said before, and it may come across to your ears as harsh, but it's worthy of your consideration. And if you don't like it at first, then I would ask you to just take it to the Lord in prayer. But, But here's the reality, and here's where we stand. She was in the position of a little dog because of all the reasons we've already discussed, right? But the truth about all of us and the truth for all of us is that anything better than hell that any of us experience is the grace of God to us. That, if we can grab it and receive it without, well, I don't know, I don't know about that. If we, can, if we can sit in that place and realize the truth of it, we can find ourselves in the proper posture to come for God, to come to God and to receive from God. Amen. What else? Her faith was working by love for her daughter. Faith works by love, remember? And I think we see here a beautiful picture of intercession. Uh, again, if you if you, I, I tried to There's a reason why Mark covered this, and God had Mark cover this in the way he covered it, so I don't want to rely too heavily on Matthew, but there is one thing I just want you to see. If you'd go back to Matthew 15 and look. As they're interacting, the the last thing she says in in the way that dialogue is recorded there is she just says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And it's beautiful because she's not praying for herself, is she? She's praying for her daughter. What does she say? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And in so many ways, friends, that's a precious prayer. Because I know there are times in life, there are things that we're going through, there are trials that we are facing where we have, (laughs) we've prayed our guts out, we've made our request, we we maybe feel like Jesus isn't answering, or we maybe feel like we got something like this. It's not moving in the way that we're hoping. And, And it can, it can feel really desperate, and, and sometimes we don't know what else to say. But it's always okay, and it's always safe to entrust him with the details and say, Lord, help me. And it's even more beautiful if you're praying on behalf of someone else, that your heart is so entwined into the situation and your love is so overflowing for them that when you're coming and making that request of the Lord on behalf of someone else, that you could, with full conviction, in praying for them, say, Lord, help me. Because in helping them, it would be helping me because I love them. Because if, if you'll grant them what they need, Lord, it'll be a blessing to me. I'll, be, I'll rejoice equally with them. It's precious. It was precious to Jesus. It should be precious to us. And it's a great example of what intercession looks like. That when, when we come to the Lord on behalf of others, that, that love be that base motivation and that all of it be soaked in that. Amen. Lastly, 
We're talking about why this woman's faith was great, why this Canaanite Syrophoenician woman from up in Tyre, why her faith was great, 50 miles away from, and again, you know, think about this for a second, guys. I know me saying from here to Columbus, you're like, oh, I'd go to Columbus, you know, because there's a cool crepe restaurant up there or something. I'd shoot up there on a Saturday and have me some crepes. Like, I know that distance for us because we have automobiles is like not that, this is a big deal. Like, it's a long way away in the ancient Middle East, okay? Big distance, week worth at least of travel by foot. So, earlier in Mark, we heard in other uh, times when Jesus is moving about, there are people from different regions in the crowds mixed in. Sometimes it calls that out. And so word is spreading, but we're still a long way from home base of where Jesus has done most of what he's done and taught most of what he's taught. Way away. And yet, how does this woman address Jesus? But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. This Syrophoenician woman of Canaanite descent, grown up in an epicenter of Baal worship, now totally soaked in the reality of, of, of the, the, the pantheon of the Roman gods, that, that is, that, that all that influence, all of that going on. Try to put yourself in the position of where she is and who she is and what access she has had to the truth about Jesus. And yet in this moment, what does she call him? She calls him Lord. She knew who he was. She knew who he was more than the Pharisees that Jesus had just got up and left from to come there. That's some great faith. To stand where she stands with all of the influences she'd had for all of her life. All of the, imagine her backstory. Coming from where she came from, family and region of origin and political influences and religious influences. And yet, she called him Lord. She knew who he was. Perhaps one of the greatest elements that displayed her faith that day. And then, that's it. That's all. That's what we hear about happening in Tyre. Done. Then Jesus just heads back, but he, he takes kind of a roundabout. He goes a little bit further north up through Sidon. We don't hear anything about what goes on there. And he loops around and heads back down the backside of the Sea of Galilee to Deco this area of Decapolis on the backside. I don't know. Were there other reasons Jesus was in Tyre? I think there's always so many reasons God's doing whatever he's doing at any given moment. If, if I ever asked for a comprehensive list, my brain would just melt. You know what I'm talking about? But of the things that God Almighty saw fit to be recorded in his scriptures for all time, of reasons he was in Tyre, did the 50-mile trek across the mountains, was this woman and her daughter and this interaction. I hope that's saying something to you. I hope, you're, I, ho I hope you understand what that means about what God thinks about just one. And so he comes down to Decapolis, and here we get to see another example. You, you'll remember Decapolis is, is also where the, the man that was among the tombs was from, 
right? So this isn't Jesus' first time in Decapolis. Only, only time we know he went to Tyre and up through Sidon, but now he's back in the region of Decapolis. Here we see another example of the love of God, not just for groups of people, but for one. Now, what is, what is it? Let, let's just <clears throat> refresh our memory. So he went from the region of Tyre, came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Okay, so do we understand what's happening here? We have a man who's deaf and cannot speak. The first question I have for all of you is that is how many of you here would, you would elect to, to stay mute and unable to speak rather than have some guy lick his finger and touch your tongue with it? <laughs> I, mean, I, not, I know some of you really have to think about it. Like, you know, you get your agabus out. Oh, I don't know. Okay. No, no, that's that's rough. I get it, you know, <laughs> especially today. I mean, good lord. But yeah, that's what happened. But but th- I think that brings us to the question, right? Like, <laughs> it should. Wh- why are we seeing this strange mode of healing, right? Why the fingers and the ears and the the saliva on the tongue? Keeping in mind that he didn't go anywhere near the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, to heal her. So we just saw him heal. There wasn't even an incantation. There was nothing. He just said, go, she's, she's fine. And now with this, we see him taken to the side, fingers in the ears, the saliva, the whole deal. What, what is going on? Why, why all the differences? Again, there's, there's probably more differences than we can possibly conceive for why God does this, but one reason that seems clear is because our Savior, he knew this man, and he knew his need, and he was willing to meet him where he was. This man could not hear the words of Jesus, and so the master met him where his senses would allow him to come. This man couldn't hear Jesus, but he could feel his fingers in his ears. This man couldn't declare that he had faith in Jesus, but our Lord knew his belief without hearing him speak it. We see Jesus, the tenderness of Christ, even in taking the man off to the side before this healing done in this kind of strange way. There's a tenderness and a compassion and a knowing. God knew what this man needed. And and commentators will say there there, there were all kinds of superstitions in the day surrounding healing. There were tinctures that could be made. There were processes laid out by rabbis and others. You know, you had pagan healers and, you know, take this plant, do this with it, dip it in this kind of blood, spit on this one, you know, urinate on this one. It's great. All kinds of weird healing methods, right? And you know, could it be that this, this, this point of contact, the way Jesus did with this man, just, it, it, he just met him where his faith was at, that, that he was willing to, to bridge that gap so that this man could be free from this deafness and from this muteness? And is the variance in the way Jesus heals? I mean, sometimes people, sometimes people touch the hem of his garment and, and, 
and, and their faith is what made them whole. Sometimes someone would run up to Jesus and please help my child and Jesus wouldn't be anywhere near them and they would get healed. Sometimes it would be someone lowers them down on a pallet, you know, and so it wasn't, it was the faith of his friends, maybe not even his faith, right? There's all these different ways that Jesus brings healing to people. Sometimes he touches them, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes it's the person's faith, sometimes it's their friend's faith. Sometimes you can't tell if any, whose faith was involved. You just see the mercy of God poured out. And that's, just, that's real important for us because a lot of times we get real focused on the idea of healing and the fact that God can heal. And many of us would like to see healing or be used to heal or, or be healed. And, and, and so we, we, we look through and we find these examples and then people try to, it's almost like they try to make up those kind of pagan tinctures and concoctions. And okay, well, if your faith is like this and you do this and it's exactly like this, then, then you can know for sure you're going to be healed by God. Part of what Jesus is doing and doing it all these different ways is letting everyone know, hey, I'm God and I'm going to heal like I want to, when I want to, and how I want to. Amen. <laughs> and you can trust me in that. It's good. Uh, I'm going to submit to you that part of the mind-blowing awesomeness of God is that even when he is meeting someone individually and, he, and he's showing them how much he knows them and how much he cares for them, it is all still a part of his bigger plan. And, and this was true for the woman from Syrophoenicia, this was the, true for the deaf and mute man, and, and it's true for us. And sometimes in the midst of our difficulty, sometimes in the midst of our trouble, it's hard to remember that. This woman had a demon-possessed daughter. This man had lived his whole life deaf and mute. It's very hard in the midst of trials like that to be thinking about a larger scope outside of us and what God may want to do through how he deals with us, how he carries us through those difficulties, how he heals us potentially, or how he brings deliverance, whatever that looks like, in the midst of the context of your struggle. But friends, there was, there was much more going on here than just his tender care for this Gentile woman from Tyre and just his compassionate care of this man from Decapolis. Though Though those were very important points that we should see, we should understand something about the character of our God through the works and the words of Christ here. There's, he's, you know, it's like we're, we're playing maybe checkers at best, man, and he's always playing 4D chess. I don't even know how that works. Anybody in here ever, play, is 40, 40 chess, like, has anybody ever played that in here? Are you that, are you that smart? Okay, good, I'm not intimidated then. I mean, regular chess, I'm trying you know, to teach my kids. Lucy's getting a little bit, but, you know, Max just wants to wrestle after about five minutes, so we'll keep working on it. Anyways, my point I'm making to you is he, he was meeting in, in, in very tender, intentional ways these two people's needs, and yet there's, there's a lot more going on. How, what, well, what, do we, what am I talking about? Again, more than I could probably ever imagine, but, but something is clear here. If we track the flow of these events, okay, what happened right before Jesus went to Tyre? Okay, we studied this last week. Jesus just got done having a, uh, you know, dialogue, kind of, you know, really it was a smackdown from him to the Pharisees over what? Over his disciples not doing the ceremonial washings before they ate, and the idea of clean and unclean food, right? Because Jesus' answer when the Pharisees come up and say, hey, why are your disciples not washing their hands as is prescribed by the oral tradition? Jesus' answer is it's not what goes into the man that defiles him, but what comes out. 
And in so doing, in, in, in what he's saying there, he's effectively declaring all foods clean, which that's, that was a big shock to the Jews of the day that were adhering to dietary laws that had come through the law, but then also oral traditions have been added on top by leaders. Uh, and, and so the next question, if you'll remember from last week, why were the ceremonial washings so important to the Jewish leaders? Well, at least part of why it was is because it made them feel superior to the dogs. And they weren't using the little dog term, but they felt better to all the other people groups around them. And even if you'll remember back, it, you know, Mark's explaining to his Gentile audience in the book of Mark, well, here, here's what's going on. That, you know, when these guys would go to the marketplace, before they came back and ate, they definitely were going to do these ceremonial washings because in the marketplace, what were they around? They were around a bunch of other people groups who they considered what? Unclean, dirty, less than, those dogs. Okay? And so that's part of why they didn't like this Jesus guy who was, lots of people are following him, lots of people are liking what he's saying, liking what he's doing, but he's got his disciples not doing these ceremonial washings. That's going to erode their authority because part of their authority, part of their, the fact that they're set apart and the fact that they see themselves as better than others is the fact that they do that stuff and they keep to the rules that they've made. So Jesus goes from that interaction where he's dealing with all of that and immediately goes to places and people that the Jews would have considered dirty, unequal enemies. Okay? So this isn't, there's really no disjointing in what Christ is doing here. He, the Pharisees challenge him. He teaches on that. And then, and then he gets up. And he's like, boys, we're going to Tyre. What? You, you can just imagine the disciples like, hold what did he say? Tyre? We don't, we don't go to Tyre. We don't mess with those people. What, what are we doing, Lord? He's doubling down. <laughs> In case you didn't get it, I'm going to show you guys something. And what did he show them? One of two people, both of which, by the way, were Gentiles, but one of two people who were going to hear these words from the master during his life. Your faith is great. I'm going to take you to Tyre, to a Canaanite Syrophoenician woman. I'm going to show you great faith. The problem is, the Jews would have considered everybody up there, including her, unequal, dirty enemies. And we need to ask ourselves, <clears throat> how did they get here? How did they get to the place that that's the way they thought about the world, that they thought about people groups? How did they get to the point that that's how they viewed other people, as dogs, curs? The way they got there is that they forgot the purpose for which God had called them his own. They forgot, I'm talking about the whole nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrews. They had for, how do they get to the point where they feel better than everyone else, be, and to the point where they gotta, they got to do special hand washing before they eat food because maybe those people's filthiness got on them? How did they get there? They got there because they forgot the purpose for which God had called them his own. Okay? Pop quiz, I know you hate these, but I'm going to keep doing them to you because I like the awkward silence. So let's do it. Who is the father 
of the Jewish faith. Who's the first one God messed with to kick this whole thing off? If you know it, say it out loud. Abraham, that's awesome. There's a song, Father Abraham, that helps, doesn't it? Songs are helpful. Father Abraham, right? So what did God, so if, if this, this whole thing kicked off with God calling Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, saying, go to the place which I will show you, and then him promising him a son, and then that whole thing, and then he gives Isaac in his old age, and, and then years later, God calls him to sacrifice him, but he trusts God. The book of Hebrews saying that, He promised me that through this boy, something was going to happen. And that means even if I slay him right now, then God's going to have to raise him from the dead. Because I know he's going to be faithful to his promise. That's how it started. And here's what God said to him in Genesis 22. Here's what God said to Abraham. Here's what I'm doing with you. Here's why I've called you. Here's why I'm calling you to set yourself apart and to obey me. Because here's what I'm doing with you. In your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Friends, somehow the religious leaders of the time had forgotten their purpose. They forgot why they were even a people. What was God doing when he called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What was God doing when they went into Egypt and then he brought them out of Egypt with mighty miracles. What was God doing with them in the wilderness and then having them cross into the promised land and conquer the land? What, what was God doing in all of that? What was God doing with those people? He'd, he raised up a people to be an example, to be a light among the nations, to show what happens when you worship the one true God, to show how it makes it you different but not different so that you can exclude yourself and feel superior to everyone else, but different so that you can invite them in to also know this God. They forgot. They forgot that Father Abraham was told, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not through your seed, we're going to make you a superior group of people and call everyone else dogs. That's not what God said. They forgot their purpose. And I can't tell by your reaction, but I assume at least some of us in the room are like, yeah, they did forget. That's gross that they forgot their purpose like that. I can't believe them. Maybe, possibly. You're thinking half of that at least. But here's what I want to submit to you, friends. We face the same danger today. As people saved and called by God. As the church We can forget that we were all little dogs, not worthy to eat the bread of life. And we can see ourselves as superior to others because our master led us. We can get caught in the detestable practice of placing ourselves above others in our minds. And we can get to the point where we cannot imagine God even wanting to save them because we see them as so despicable. Now, I know at face value, all of us would quickly deny that that's even a remote possibility within our hearts and minds. But I'm asking you for some humble introspection. The question for us today, church, church, right? What what were the Jewish people? They're the ones called by God through Abraham. We're the ecclesia. We're the called out ones, called because of the blood of Christ to be his church, his body. 
The question for each of us is this. Is there anyone or are there any people who you think are beyond saving? And I don't mean at the level of if this was a class and I was the professor and I asked you for the right answer. I don't mean at that level. Because I know most of you know the right answer. Well, no, of course not. I'm talking about what goes in your heart when you think about the most difficult people. When you think about the ones you disagree with the most. The ones you think hate you the most. Is there anyone or any people who you think are somehow much less deserving of grace than you are? I'm talking about functionally, at the heart level. Because here's the truth, if there is, if we've fallen into that trap, what we might find is that we don't understand grace at all. And it may be, it might be in that person or those people that you detest that our Savior finds that humble and great faith which pleases him. And I'm, I'm hearing it all the time. Well, I just don't see how you could be a Christian if... <laughs> what? Do you, do you think the disciples, before they started the hiking trip to Tyre, what, what do you think they would have said if Jesus said, I'm about to show you great faith in a Canaanite, Syrophoenician woman? What do you think they would have said? I just don't see how. I just don't see. I don't see how. Hello? That's part, not just going here to bless this woman and to heal her daughter and to meet her individual need. Jesus is, whoo, man, he's playing a game we can't, I don't even know what it's called. 40 chess isn't good enough to describe all that's going on and what he's thinking about and what he's doing, what he's working. He's showing his disciples something in this. He's showing us something in this. It could be in the very people you think are the least deserving of grace that God would find great faith. Instead of seeing ourselves as more holy or enlightened than others, we would do good to remember we are all the little dogs who only receive salvation because of the sheer grace of our merciful master. And this will help us to look at those who haven't yet tasted the bread of life from his table, or ones we think haven't. It'll help us to look with them not with eyes full of contempt, but instead with compassion, which is really the only right posture we can have towards others. Letting this be our lens, it will allow us to pray for them with the same kind of love this woman prayed for her daughter with. And it will prompt us to move into action like the friends of the deaf man who brought him to Jesus. In case you're wondering if I just said what I said, I did. Let me make clear what I'm saying. The love with which this woman came to Jesus over her daughter can be the same kind of love we can go to God with as we intercede for those 
whom once we would have hated. Whom once we would have considered far less worthy of grace than ourselves, which in and of itself, by definition, tells us we don't really understand grace. Well, I just don't see how. I, I know, it's hard. I realize that love is like this cosmic call beyond what we could ever really comprehend. And I realize that it's going to take the anointing and help of the Holy Spirit for us to come anywhere close to it. And that's why this sermon, along with every other sermon you're ever going to hear me preach, or any faithful Bible preacher is ever going to preach, the point of this sermon is to end you up at your knees in front of Christ asking for his help. That's where this woman was, and that's where we all belong. Matthew's account makes sure to tell us she fell on her knees before him. <laughs> Friends, Jesus, he doesn't only open our ears to be able to hear and receive the truth of his gospel. He frees our tongues that we may go and proclaim it. Those always go together. These two accounts that we've read today, they both shatter like glass the idea that the ethnic and political and gender and religious barriers that we put up between us, that those have any real validity. They don't. Do you understand? Everybody who knew Jesus was about to roll out of the Galilee region and head up to Tyre would have been freaked out. What? What? What's he going to do there? What could he possibly be doing with those people? <laughs> the barriers in their minds between them and them wasn't real. And what do I mean by not real? I mean, how do we define what's real? Well, I would say, what does it look like from God's perspective? That's like the realest that it gets, right? So from God's perspective, in terms of who could receive grace, who could receive mercy and provision from God, the Syrophoenician Canaanite woman was no different than the children of Israel. Now Jesus does, at the end of the, the situation in Decapolis, he, he, does, he keeps telling people, shh, shh, shh. And, and you might be like, well, I don't, okay, so that doesn't really jive. What's going on there? The reality is, Jesus knew the timeline, okay? And so the fullness of all these things wasn't, wasn't going to be totally possible until the fullness of the gospel was revealed, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, that he rose from the grave, that he conquered sin and death, that the, the wall spoken of in Ephesians, that the dividing wall between us, that that was tore down, okay? And so, <clears throat> you know, Jesus knows there's a timeline and there's certain things he's sent by the Father to do up until the point where he's crucified. And so, you know, he keeps telling people to hush, but it's, it's not because uh, there's any question about the background lesson being taught here by him going to this Syrophoenician woman and him going to this man in Decapolis. The context makes it perfectly clear. Challenge about ceremonial washings, his answer about that, okay? You guys think you're superior because of these reasons. Let me help you with something. You're not. It's not what goes in. It's what comes out of a man. Heavy breath. Come on, boys, we're going to Tyre. Let me show you something. <laughs> mm. These two accounts both shatter like glass the idea that the ethnic and political and gender and religious barriers we put up between us have any real validity.
You already said that. Oh, I know. I want to say it again. What does this leave us with? It leaves us, hopefully, with this question. What great lengths will we travel? What barriers will we jump over? What risks will we take in order to follow in the footsteps of our master and bring the good news of his gospel to all people? And I pray the answer to that question for us here is whatever it takes. And may it be so. For our good, and it is for our good, but more importantly, for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you so much for these accounts. I thank you, Lord, you didn't just have them recorded once, but twice. I thank you, Lord, that the the flow of of these events, they, they mirror each other so closely in Matthew and Mark that we know that that's intentional. We know that you're showing us something and how all this breaks down. Thank you, Lord, that It is true that you you can be meeting my need, that you can be ministering to me personally and compassionately and at the same moment. All of that is tied into the bigger plan. Lord, help us keep that in mind. Help us keep in mind that our trials and struggles and the testimonies we have from your faithfulness in the past, that none of that is just about us, but all that you're doing with all of us and all that you're doing with each of us, God, it's, it's tied in and it's woven into this overall redemptive story of what you're doing in the earth. So Lord, help us. Help us not to feel lonely in our struggles. Help us not to feel or or, or entertain the question of what is the point of all this? Because God, there's always a point. You're always in your great sovereignty. You are weaving your purposes in the earth and you are always doing what you promised to do, working for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. God, I thank you for this Syrophoenician woman. I can't wait to learn her name when I stand in your great eternal country one day. I can't wait to shake her hand. And I can't wait to talk to her and hear about how she came to this great faith and what it was like for you, Jesus, to look her in the eye and to say, oh woman, your faith is great. I can't wait to hear her tell this story. I look forward with great anticipation to all of that. Lord, help us. (laughs) Help us that these scriptures would be written upon our hearts. Help us make this woman more famous in the earth. Her story needs to be heard because her story means so much. It means so much about who you are and who we are and how we should stand, what our posture should be before you and what our posture should be towards one another. May we gain insight and inspiration and strength from the story of this incredible woman. Thank you, Master. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the layers and layers and layers of truth that we find here. Thank you. That that the reality is, even though we dug around and we kicked rocks over and we dug into the depth of this today, that we but scratched the surface and there is so much more. Thank you that your word is living and it shapes and and it it grows with us. and, And we could come back to these scriptures a year from now and be struck in a whole different way. I thank you, Lord, for the the clear application to the struggles of our day we find in all of Mark chapter 7. God, help us not just to be head-nodding hearers of your word, but obedient doers. May these things have the effect that they should, shaping and changing us, God, for your glory and for the furthering of your kingdom, for the great fame of your name. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.